Welcome. You're listening to The Sanctuary Podcast with Pastor Tullian Chavidjan. If you'd like to learn more about The Sanctuary, visit our website, thesanctuaryjupiter.com. I mentioned this last week, but when most of us think about suffering, we think of tragedies like death and disease and divorce and depression, you know, the deadly Ds. We, we, think, of, we think of crises. We think of the big stuff. But as I said last week, suffering is much bigger and much broader than that. Everyday stuff that you and I experience, stuff like frustration and disappointment, anxiety, fear, insecurity, stress, sadness, my ongoing struggle with myself, my ongoing struggle with other people, my ongoing struggle with God, my ongoing struggle with circumstances, all of that is suffering too. It's not just the big stuff. It's not just big tragedies and catastrophes. It's all of that stuff relational strain, loneliness, this nagging sense of not enoughness, the feeling of being misunderstood, the feeling of being rejected, even in the smallest ways, it's all suffering. We all suffer. Pain is unavoidable. And it's been widely agreed on that there is no piece of literature that handles the problem of pain with more honesty and more realism than the biblical story of Job. Even people who don't believe in God, people who don't read the Bible, admit, literary scholars admit that there is no place, there is no piece of literature that handles the problem of pain with more honesty and more realism than the biblical story of Job. It's a story about our suffering and God's sovereignty. It's a story about our pain and God's providence. It's about those intersections in life where our misery and God's mercy collide where our grief and God's grace crash into each other, where catastrophe and compassion meet and wreck. It's about being a broken person living in a broken world with other broken people but with a faithful God. It's about the fact that life is hard, that pain is real, but grace abounds. That's what the book of Job is about. That's what this story is about. Well, this time and next time, this week and next week, we're going to look at chapters 1 and 2, but we're going to do this backwards, okay? And this is what I mean. Chapters 1 and 2 tell us what happened behind the curtain and then shows us how Job responds on stage. Okay, that's what happens. We get a peek, the reader, when we read chapter 1 and chapter 2, the reader gets a peek at the reason why Job is suffering, although Job never knows why he's suffering gets to the end of the book and he still has no clue why he suffered the tragedies that he suffered. But we, the reader, get a peek behind the curtain. We know why he suffered. But Job responds on stage. He has no clue what's going on behind the curtain. Um, And so I want to look first at how Job responds on the stage and then take a look next time at what happened behind the curtain. And there's a reason I'm doing it this way. The reason I'm doing it this way is because I want us to feel the weight of Job's calamity. Job didn't know why tragedy struck as thickly and suddenly as it did. It just happened. There was no forewarning. There was no explanation. It just happened. And that's the way it happens to us also. We don't, get a, we don't get a peek behind the curtain regarding why we're suffering what we're suffering. We never know what's around the corner. We can't predict or explain our day of calamity. 
And so I want us to experience our, this story the way Job experienced his suffering. I want to go backwards hoping to feel what Job felt, if that makes sense. I want to look at how he responded to this sudden tragedy, to these sudden catastrophes, and then look at what's going on behind the scenes. David Jackson wrote a book called Crying Out for Vindication, and this is how it begins. I discovered Job when I was sitting by my wife's hospital bed waiting for her to wake up after a miscarriage. We had prayed for this child's safety since before the child was conceived. We had prayed all that night that the child would survive the present crisis. The answer was no. I sat there looking out the window of the hospital at sunrise, and and I watched a bird fly across a cloudless sky as the sun rose. And I said to God, how come that wretched bird could soar through such a sunrise and our child made in your image never see the light of day? I mean, you ever feel like that? I have. You ever find yourself in pain and wrestling with God like that? wanting to know why, frustrated at why something seems to be happening in your life, something that you can't seem to fix or something you can't seem to control. It seems so unjust. It's so maddening. It's painful. It's not just that you're suffering whatever the calamity is, but you're also suffering the frustration of why God has allowed this calamity to happen. I know I have felt like that. Job did too. And what I love about Job's response, okay, what I love, the thing about Job's response that captures me the most is how emotionally realistic it is, how raw it is. He suffers a a series of quick and major blows. He loses his wealth. He loses his children. He loses his reputation. He loses his health. I mean, he loses everything. He loses his property. Even his wife in chapter 2 comes to him and says, are you still trusting God? Why don't you curse him already and die? I mean, everybody's suffering. It's not just Job that's suffering. Everybody around Job is suffering. The, The loss is catastrophic, cataclysmic. I mean, this is end of the world kind of stuff. And writhing in unimaginable agony, he tears his robe, he shaves his head, and he falls to the ground. All of those things are sort of ancient practices which symbolize extreme grief, deep and profound mourning, grief from places that you never knew you could grieve, grief in ways you didn't think you could grieve. There is no part of his life that is not completely wrecked, completely wrecked. He's absolutely undone. I would venture to say that there is no one in this room or no one watching online that has suffered these kinds of calamities in such quick succession. I mean, this is massive. All of his kids die in one fell swoop. He loses all of his money. He loses all of his property. He loses everything that made him who he was. His wife, who you thought, think maybe she would be a source of comfort in some, to some degree, leaves him, and her parting words are, just curse God and die already. I'm out of here. I mean, this guy's lost it all. Lost it all. He's undone. And notice verse 22. 
Job's emotional outburst is not condemned. In fact, it's affirmed. Verse 22 says, in all of this, in, in all of the ways that Job has responded to these tragedies, to this suffering, to this pain, to this agony, in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. So verse 22 affirms his emotional outburst. It doesn't condemn it. Sadness and grief and frustration and confusion in the face of pain and suffering is sanctioned by God. That's no small thing. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to express grief when you're suffering pain to express frustration when you're experiencing something tragic. I said last week that the required cheerfulness that characterizes many of our churches has produced this suffocating environment of pat religious answers to the painful, complex questions that riddle the lives of hurting people all around us. We give people, in other words, the impression that To mourn is to lack faith. To grieve is to lack faith. We make people feel like they don't have faith if they grieve. If they really trusted that God was good and in control, they wouldn't be as undone as they are. We make people feel guilty. We make people feel like they're not really trusting God. You know, when I go to a funeral sometimes, and I've been to a handful where this has happened, um, and some massive tragedy has struck, and the person closest to the tragedy, maybe it's a wife or a husband or a, a, a parent of a child who has died prematurely, and when the first thing they do when they get up is to say, I just want to... I want to thank God that even though I don't understand this, I know he's good. I want to get up and scream because it just seems so fake. It seems like that's what they think they ought to be doing. But down deep, that's not the way they feel. They are shaking their fists at the heavens, writhing in pain, frustrated that God would allow something like this to happen and so wreck me. I told you last week that when my life fell apart in 2015 and I was suffering a lot of losses on a lot of fronts, I handled it fairly well in the very beginning internally as it pertains to God because I was like, you know, I did some bad stuff and I'm paying the price. These are the consequences for, for you know, doing what you did. But after a while, six months down the road, year down the road, when I was still experiencing the consequences of that stuff, that's when my anger started to burn. Like, God, this isn't, I mean, this is, this is too much. There are a lot of people who have done a lot worse than this, and they suffer a lot less than I am. That's the kind of emotionally realistic response or reaction we get from Job. That he's, he's undone, he's mourning, he's, he's grieving, he's, he's completely wrecked. But the Bible doesn't brush lightly over pain. Nowhere do we find God, anywhere in the Bible do we find God sanctioning a suck-it-up-and-deal-with-it posture toward hurt. Never. At no place do you find God in the Bible saying to anybody, listen, snap out of it, Okay? Don't you trust me? 
Don't you know that I'm good and I'm doing things behind the scenes that you can't see? Just trust me and stop your crying. Stop your whining. I got this. Do you not believe that? Nowhere. Nowhere does the Bible brush lightly over pain. Nowhere do we find God sanctioning this get over it posture toward hurt. In fact, as we saw in the Psalms when we when we studied some of the Psalms, we saw that God gives us the okay and the space to cry and to scream. We are broken people. We are living in a broken world. And we are broken people living in a broken world with other broken people. I mentioned last week how sin is the vandalism of shalom. It's it's the undoing of things, the unraveling of things. It breaks things apart. It toxifies things. That's, that's the world that we live in. So we're, we're going to experience pain and grief and frustration and hurt. And, and God gives us the okay to express ourselves in an emotionally realistic way when those things happen. Far from, um, oh, I love this, at the end of verse 20. It says, he worshipped. It says he worshipped. And then it says, gives us the content of his worship in verse 21. So in verse 20, it says, then Job arose after he gets all this bad, bad news, horrible, tragic news. He's lost his business. He's lost all of his children. He's lost all of his possessions. He's lost his health, and now he's lost his wife. It's all gone. One clean swoop. Gone. And at the end of verse 20, it says, I mean, in verse 20, it says, Then Job arose after hearing this news, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. That makes no sense to me. Fell on the ground and worshipped? But then it gives us the content of his worship in verse 21. Look at what he says. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Okay, now, just in case you read that and you feel really low and guilty because you're recalling the day of your tragedy and calamity, and that's not the way you responded. Don't worry. Job breaks. We'll get to that. Okay, he breaks. He starts off strong, and then he comes crumbling down. Okay? Some of us think that, you know, we, we, the way that the Christian life progresses is that we start weak and get strong. That's not always the case. Oftentimes what we see is people starting strong and getting weak. That Christian growth, spiritual progress is not a bottom-up kind of thing where we start bad and get good or start weak and get strong. Oftentimes it's we start strong and get weak. We start off thinking that we're good, and then as time goes on, we realize that we're not that good. It's Paul at the end of his life, the Apostle Paul at the end of his life, having walked with God now for many, many years, saying, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the least of all the saints and the worst guy that I know. This was, this was the fruit of a lifetime of walking with God. Not I'm getting better and better and stronger and stronger and more and more competent every day, but it's I'm becoming increasingly aware of how weak and incompetent I am and how strong and competent God continues to be for me. That's what it looks like to grow. Spiritual growth, you could say, is coming to a greater realization of how much grace we need. That's what it is. 
It's not some sort of behavior modification. I used to do bad things and now I do good things. Because you could stop doing bad things and start doing good things for all the, bad, for all the wrong reasons. Spiritual growth is I'm becoming increasingly aware of how much I need God's grace. So we see Job starting off strong here. But as we'll get to in the next few weeks, he gets weaker and buckles. But what's fascinating to me, and the reason that I bring this to your attention, is because the fact that it says at the end of verse 20 he worshipped, and then in verse 21 gives us the content of his worship, means that Job's grief is itself an act of worship. We, t- we don't typically think about grief in those ways. But Job's grief is, is actually an act of worship. Far from be- grieving being a lack of faith, grieving is actually an expression of faith. This is what I mean. Grief is an emotional acknowledgement that things aren't the way they ought to be. This shouldn't be happening. Pain like this shouldn't happen. Grief is an emotional acknowledgement that things are broken, that shalom has been vandalized. But whatever, you know, and I said this, whatever, you know, that Job's initial experience is, and I'm worshiping and I'm good, it's going to get bad, okay? It's going to get bad. We're going to be able to relate to him probably a little bit better in the coming chapters than we can in this moment. But The fact that his grief and the expression of his grief is identified here as an act of worship is something significant, in my opinion. Grief involves a distant memory of what once was and a cry for what will one day be a universal reality once again. A world without pain and disease and conflict and death. A world without suffering. To grieve is an act of worship. It's a statement of faith that one day things won't be this way. See, the Bible says that God made all things good. We read that in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, that God made all things good. And then Genesis chapter 3 makes it clear that we then broke every good thing God made. But then the rest of the Bible is God's unfolding promise that he is in the process of making all things new. So that the best is yet to come. Well, underneath our grief is a cry for that day. We may not know it. We may not be conscious of it. But that's what grief is. It's a, it's a realization. It's a recognition that this shouldn't be happening. It's a recognition that this, this world is broken. I am broken. People in this world are broken. It wasn't always like this. And it won't always be like this. Underneath our grief is a cry for that day when we will enjoy sinless hearts and minds along with disease-free bodies, when, when all that causes us pain and discomfort will be destroyed, and we will be able to enjoy what is most enjoyable with unbounded energy and passion forever. There is so much more going on when you're grieving than what you think. It is an act of worship because it's, It's an acknowledgement that things aren't the way they should be. And it is fueled by an anticipation that one day everything sad will come untrue. Well, if the first part of Job's response is expected, shaving his head, tearing his robe, 
falling on the ground. The second part is stunning, the part that we just looked at. Verse 21, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Shocking, stunning. I don't remember having that kind of reaction when I felt a lot of loss. When I felt pain in my deepest parts, when I felt some of the things that Job is experiencing here, when I felt some of those things for very different reasons, I don't remember feeling like that. That wasn't my initial response. I was accepting of it because I, 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 knew, that, I knew that in some sense I deserve this, but my reaction was not, God, you are so good. And even though I used to have and now I've lost, I know I haven't lost you. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That was not my reaction. Okay. And I doubt that it was yours either. When your day of calamity hit, whatever that day or those days have been for you or that season has been for you, Job demonstrates in this response, okay, and I think that's why this initial response is so important to sort of dissect because he demonstrates in this initial response that it's possible to have peace in the midst of pain. Listen to me. Suffering itself does not rob you of joy. Idolatry does. Listen, if, if, if you're suffering and you are paralyzingly angry and bitter and joyless, it means you've idolized whatever it is you're losing. Now, it's one thing to be sad. It's one thing to grieve. But if, you, if you're paralyzingly bitter, if you're paralyzingly angry and joyless, in a season or a moment of loss, it means that you've idolized whatever it is you're losing. I've said this before, but the Bible defines idolatry as anything more important to you than God. That could be a good thing in your life. It could be your business. It could be your spouse. It could be your child. Whatever that thing or that person is that's more important to you than God, that you need more than you need God in your own heart and mind. The Bible calls that an idol. Tim Keller calls an idol a counterfeit God. A counterfeit God is anything so essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel like it wasn't worth living. An idol is something that we, we can't live without. We can't live without it. We need it. Most idols, as I said, in themselves are good gifts from God. Our, our spouse, our children, our hopes, our dreams... Our work, our success, our skill, our looks, our reputation. These things in and of themselves are not bad. Most of those things are gifts from God. But when those things become more important to us than God, when they become, in that sense, objects of worship for us, um, that's when they become idols. The trouble comes when these things become more important to us than God. And when this happens, we end up depending on these things and these people to provide us with the meaning and the purpose and the freedom and the security and the significance that only God can provide. Basically, what we end up doing is we make lesser gods out of good things. 
gods that can't give us what we really need. So an idol is anything or anyone that you conclude in your heart you must have in order for your life to be meaningful and valuable and secure and exciting and free. You have to have it. So joylessness and bitterness in the crucible of ache happens when we lose something we have valued more than God. Now Job's immediate reaction here demonstrates that at the very least, thanks to God's grace, his identity was anchored in the right spot. In God. His life was built on God. God had built Job's life on the sure foundation of God's love and God's mercy and God's grace and God's sovereignty and God's goodness. And so Job's initial reaction demonstrates that at least his life was built in the right place. Because when our lives are not built in the right place, when we are depending on all of these lesser gods to be for us what only God has promised to be, that's when joylessness and bitterness and paralyzing anger happens in the crucible of ache because when we lose these things, we feel like we're losing something absolutely necessary to live. And so one of the questions that I ask myself and other people when I'm talking about this kind of thing is, what is it in your life that if you were to lose it, you would think life is not worth living? Whatever that is, could be, literally, it could be a child. It could be one of your children. It could be a spouse. It could be, it could be a dream. One of the things that keeps you alive is the dream of one day getting married or one day having children or one day getting the job you want or having enough money to do the things you like. Maybe that dream itself has become the thing that keeps you going. Well, that's it's become an idol. It doesn't just have to be something tangible like a person or a circumstance or a possession. It can be an idea. It could be a dream. It could be an ambition of some sort. So what is it? What is that thing in your life? That thing that if, if you lost it, you would feel like life isn't worth living. See, Job survived this round. This round. Okay, he survived. Because for the time being, he holds on to a robust theology of grace. He knew that he was not entitled to anything he had. He knew that correctly. God held the title to everything. Everything he has, in fact, uh, at the end of verse, I mean, at the end of chapter 2, well, not the end of chapter 2, but chapter 2, verse 9 this is when his wife comes to him and says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But this is what he said. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. What's he saying? He's saying, I don't, we don't own any of this stuff. I mean, we are, we are owners of nothing and stewards of everything we've been gifted. None of this stuff belongs to us, and any form of attachment that we, that we you know, any form of attachment that we felt to these things that we've now lost, and a form of attachment that convinced us that we own this stuff, 
These aren't our kids. These are God's. These aren't our, these aren't our sheep and oxen. And These are God's. All of this belongs to God. How can I complain? I didn't complain when he gave it to me. And it was his right to take it away. So, like, this is God's. This is, this is his reasoning right now. This is, he is holding on to at this moment. Okay? Can't, can't emphasize that enough. I don't want you guys to walk out here thinking, well, I'm a real loser because I don't handle pain the way Job handles pain. Don't worry. Job doesn't even handle pain the way Job handles pain as we make our way through the story. Um, we are all losers who don't handle pain the way we ought to handle pain, okay? I mean, I wish this would be my posture all the time that would give me so much peace. Something good comes into my life, and I love it, and I enjoy it, and then it's gone. And I wish in that moment I could say, wasn't mine to begin with. Thank you, Lord, for the short period of time that I had it. (laughs) That's not the way we respond. I know. I know this isn't the way that I've responded to even the smallest things that I didn't work for that are now gone. The smallest things that were gifted to me, given to me, not because I deserved it or earned it, but because God is gracious and now they're gone. I get frustrated. Why? I want it back. I deserve it. I earned it. You remember those famous quote from Barry Switzer? I think it was Barry Switzer, the horrendous, horrendous coach of the Dallas Cowboys back in the 90s. I hated that guy so much. And I hated him because I loved the Dallas Cowboys, okay? And Jerry Jones had just gotten rid of Jimmy Johnson. It would have been a 10-year dynasty had those two egos not clashed. And in comes Barry Well, I won't get into all that. You can tell football season started last week, and the Cowboys season is already over after the first game. Game one, done. Um... Anyway, but that famous, you know, that famous quote from Barry Switzer where he said, uh, so many of us are born on third base and we think we hit a triple. It's so true. You know, we, we get these things from God, these gifts, and then they're gone and, and we get angry because we feel like they're ours. Well, Job's response demonstrates none of this stuff's ours. We live and move and have our being in a vortex and context of grace. Everything, the the air that we're breathing right now is a gift of grace. The air condition we feel is a gift of grace. So many things we take for granted thinking that we deserve this stuff. We've earned it. It is all of grace, all of grace from beginning to end. Our lives commence in grace, they continue in grace, and they will consummate in grace. It's all grace from beginning to end. And Job gets that here at the beginning. He, he knew that he was not entitled to anything he had. Job knew that everything he had was on loan from God. He understood that he was an owner of nothing, that he was a steward of everything. He was able to say, I came with nothing from the womb, I go with nothing to the tomb. God gave me children freely, then he took them to himself again. At last, I taste the bitter rod, my wise and ever-blessed God. That's what he's saying. 
He's saying, I don't understand what's happening, and I don't understand why it's happening, but God, absent as he seems right now, is ultimately my only hope. He is my strength. He is my rock, my provider, my deliverer. I'm with him no matter what because he's never failed me, ever. Whatever this is, he's thinking, it's not God failing me. Whatever this is, I don't know what this is, but whatever it is, it's, it's not God failing me. I can't tell you why you're going through whatever you're going through, but I can tell you this, it's not God failing you. One of the illustrations that I've used over the years uh, to make this point is, uh, has to do with my dad. Uh, my dad, who died now in 2010, January of 2010, you've heard me talk about him before. He's one of my best friends, my chief advisor and counselor. He was brilliant, Swiss-born psychologist, PhD from Marquette University, Dwayne Wade's alma mater. Uh, and uh, just a great dad. Five boys, two girls. Was never afraid to show affection to his sons. Told me he called me honey and told me he loved me and kissed me till the day he died. It's an amazing man. I would never make one big decision or even small decision in life without seeking his counsel. He was that much of a rock in my life. Died prematurely at 70 years old. Uh, because he had heart issues. Um, and there's not, a, there's not a week that goes by where I don't miss him and wish that in some way, shape, or form I could reach him. There are so many things I've experienced in the last 12 years that I know he would have been so helpful to me about. He would have helped guide me through what proved to be the darkest years of my life. He wasn't there for that in person. I held my dad in the highest esteem, a man of tremendous character, a man of tremendous integrity. I knew that he was a sinner, but he never proved it to me. <laughs> um, and uh, I remember in trying to illustrate this point about whatever this is, it's not God failing you. I remember using my dad as this illustration that if somebody had told me when my dad was alive that they saw him coming out of some woman's apartment at midnight, I may not be able to tell you what he was doing there, but I could absolutely tell you what he was not doing there because I knew my dad. I knew who he was. Well, this is the same way it is with God. We may not be able to know why he's doing the things that he's doing. We don't get a peek behind the curtain. Job didn't get a peek behind the curtain. We don't get a peek behind the curtain. We don't know what's going on. It feels unjust. It feels confusing. It feels incredibly painful. And in those moments, it's understandable that we question God. What are you doing? Either you're, either you're good and not in control or you're in control and not good, but you can't be both because if you were, this wouldn't be happening to me right now. That's understandable. 
Job's going to end up saying that. His friends say that. We say that. Everyone throughout history who's experienced tremendous pain has said that. At least in their hearts, they've said it. And so it's understandable that that would be our response and our reaction to pain and hurt and trouble. But what we can say for sure is even though we don't know why or what God is doing, we can say for certain he's not failing us. He's not failing us. I can't tell you what he is doing, but I can tell you what he's not doing. Job knew that too. This is that robust theology of grace that he's holding on to, at least initially. He's holding on to. So I can't tell you what you're going through. I can't tell you why you're going through it. I can't explain God to you in these moments. I can't. People come to me sometimes. They're like, you're, you're the pastor. You're the guy with the answers. I'm like, no, I'm the pastor. I'm the guy who points to the guy who has the answers, not me. And, and the answers that we're looking for aren't answers God is obligated to give us. Let's keep that in mind too. You know, just let me just say this so we can be clear on the difference between God and us, okay? Um, God does not do something because it is just. Something is just because God does it. Those are two very different things. It's not as if there is this external standard of goodness and justice that God lives under. And because he's good and just, he has to then, he has to then uh, sort of consider what is good and what's just and then make his decisions based on that standard outside of himself. That's not the way it works. He sets the standard. Something is by definition good and just because God does it. So to in any way, shape, or form charge God with injustice is, it's, it's a philosophical impossibility can't happen. Um, so I, I can't tell you why you're going through what you're going through. I can't tell you why I'm going through what I'm going through. What I can tell you and myself is that it's not God failing us. It's not. Nicholas Wolterstorff, I'm going to close with this, is a um, Christian who taught philosophical theology for many years at Yale University. He and his wife have six children, but he lost an adult son. His son, Eric, who was 25 at the time, died in a mountain climbing accident. And Nicholas Wolterstorff chronicled the grief that he experienced through his loss in a journal. And this guy had devoted his entire life to the understanding, meaning, and reality of life's mysteries. And then he suddenly, strikingly lost a son. And in a single moment, all of his intellectual categories for making sense of evil and pain and why these things happen were demolished. And that journal that he wrote... Uh, immediately after his son's death, years later was published as a book entitled Lament for a Son. I'll never forget where I was when I picked it up. I was a seminary student 
and I walked into Barnes and Noble to do some studying because my kids were small at that time and I couldn't study at home and walked into a Barnes and Noble and I got bored or maybe I just needed to take a break from my studies and I would always walk up and down aisles and at that time my primary interests were philosophy and history and theology, they kind of still are. Um, and so I picked, I knew the name Nicholas Wolterstorff because he was this, you know, highly esteemed Christian philosopher who taught at an Ivy League school. And I picked up this book because I saw his name, Lament for a Son. And, uh, I read the opening page and in Barnes and Noble as a 25 year old kid, I, I, my, all my kids were healthy at that time. The two that I had were healthy. I, I just started crying reading this. I felt what he said. Um, he, he opens the book with his recollection of the moment that he got the dreaded phone call. This is what he said. The phone rings. He, no, says this. The call came at 3.30 on that Sunday afternoon, a bright sunny day. We had just sent his younger brother off to the plane to be with him for the summer. The phone rings. Hello? Mr. Wolterstorff? Yes. Is this Eric's father? Yes. Mr. Wolterstorff, I must give you some bad news. Yes. Eric has been climbing in the mountains and has had an accident. Yes. Mr. Wolterstorff, Eric has had a serious accident. Yes. Go on. Mr. Wolterstorff, I must tell you, Eric is dead. Mr. Wolterstorff, are you there? You must come at once. Mr. Wolterstorff, Eric is dead. For three seconds, he said, I felt the peace of resignation. Arms extended, limp son in hand, peacefully offering him to someone, someone. Then the pain, cold, burning, piercing pain, he says. I read that, 25 years old, you start weeping, thinking this is not the way, this is not the way it's supposed to be. It doesn't matter how much time and energy and effort you spend into trying to figure out the why behind your suffering and why suffering happens and whether these are practical answers you're looking for or philosophical answers you're looking for, there's really no answer to any of your why questions that prepares you for this kind of pain. Nothing. Nicholas Wolterstorff had spent his entire life using all of the intellectual capabilities that God gifted him with, exploring these themes. And when his day of calamity came, he was undone. His harrowing account shows that the gospel, the gospel in particular and Christianity in general, is ultimately not a defense from pain and suffering. Rather, it is the message of God's presence in our pain. That's what it is. And I said this last week, we, the best place to see this is at the cross, where you see God's hands in the dirt, where you see God curled up on the bathroom floor with us, 
We're not responsible for finding the right formula to combat or unlock our suffering. But whatever rest and peace we might be able to experience in the face of cold, burning pain comes from Jesus himself, the man of sorrows, the crucified God who meets us in our grief, meets us there. He doesn't abandon us in our pain. He joins us. He walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. So whatever you're going through or whatever you will go through, whatever you have gone through, if you can't figure out why and you haven't come up with the answers that you like, that you would like, or you haven't been able to find the the silver lining that you hoped you would find in your pain, know this. Whatever it is, I can tell you what it isn't. It's not God failing you. It's not God leaving you, forsaking you. It's not God punishing you. We're going to get to that in a few weeks. It's not God punishing you. All of the punishment that we deserve for all of the stupid, foolish, sinful things we do was taken care of 2,000 years ago. So whatever it is you're experiencing, it's not God spanking you. Okay, It's not him punishing you in that regard. We'll look at that too. He promises to never leave you, to never forsake you, and that he will never fail you. That's his promise to you today and every day. Let's pray together. If you've enjoyed this message, be sure to subscribe to the Sanctuary Podcast. You can find it on all major podcast platforms. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider giving to the work God is doing through the sanctuary. You can give on our website, thesanctuaryjupiter.com. Thanks for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast.